Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Amir Fazeli podcast. In this episode, I've got my friend Tarek Ahmed joining us to talk about mental health, his struggles with depression, extreme de depression and uh, near suicide attempt. It's a very telling episode and we talk about a lot of the stigmas associated with mental health, especially for men. And uh, we talk about how he turned that around and used his experience to uh, create, educate, uh, to be able to impact a lot of people's lives and uh, basically a lot of his experiences and stories about uh, depression and mental health and the things that he's realized over time. So it's a pretty interesting episode, uh, some, some very touching moments, and I'll let the rest of it do the talking. All right, we've got, we got my mate uh, Tarek here on uh, on today's podcast uh, Tarek thanks for joining me thanks for having me it's a pleasure so there's a few things uh, actually I wanted to talk to you about and is the reason why I brought you on uh, first of all for the listeners out there uh, me and Tarek know each other because uh, through uh, through Adonis Athletics he um, obviously started as a member and and like with pretty much all the members uh, we're now mates so I've known him for a very long time. He was actually involved in, he was one of the competitors in uh, at, on the grind. So for those uh, of you listening out there who haven't followed uh, Adonis Athletics for long enough, a couple of years ago, we actually did a, like a world first. It got, it got some coverage on barbend.com. Uh, it was basically the world's first powerlifting reality show. And it's still there. It's still on Facebook, on, on YouTube. Uh, if you just go to uh, YouTube, go to Don Athletics channel, just search for The Grind. Uh, you, can, you can see it. It's a 13-part uh, series. And Tarek was actually one of, uh, one of the competitors. And in his heyday, he was a pretty decent squatter. He was a pretty decent squatter. What's your, what was your best? 275. That's right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a pretty a decent competitions. squat. That's right. It was a pretty decent squat. Yeah. Uh, you, got the, you got the right dimensions for it, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So Nice and wide. Uh, what are you doing these days for training? Uh, I saw you've, you've gone into running and, and uh, just general, general fitness and stuff like that. Yeah. So I just want to take a break so from all the heavy weight lifting and stuff and starting to sort of focus on um, things that I've neglected over the last few years like fitness and cardio and um, so just, yeah, I've been doing some, you know, home workouts, a bit of high intensity uh, training and just sort of running, you know, I'm on like a bit of a running plan to get to the 10K mark. Um, I think it's something yeah. that I haven't done. I, I, don't, I don't remember the last time I did any sort of running program. I think it was back when I was playing footy, which is about seven, eight years ago. Um, so it's actually really interesting, you know. Um, so now, yeah, just, just running pretty much two, three times a week, working towards that 10 kilometer goal. Is, is Dan doing the uh, running programming for you? I'm actually doing it with T-Chef. Uh, and uh, yeah, Dan, nice. Dan, I think he's collaborating with Dan to sort of, it's like, all right, what can we do yeah, with these guys? So it's actually a group of us. There's about eight, eight of us. Um, first, it was T-Chef telling us, you know, you can do the 10Ks. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I can because, you know, I tried running 100 meters and I can't run 100 meters. So he's like, no, trust me, let me, put, let me put you on a program and we'll run the 10Ks together. And then we had a, a few other a few other friends, some Currently Adonis, some not Adonis. Um, most of them are ex or they're still there at the moment. We said, you know what, let's do it together. You know, let's all train and let's get the yeah, 10 yeah. kilometer run going together. So 
um, it's it's been great. Nice, man. You know? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's good. It's a good, uh, like you know, a new challenge to give uh, some backgrounds for for the listeners. Uh, so two names were mentioned. One's Dan. Dan's one of our coaches. Uh, he also was a powerlifter, a very good powerlifter. Uh, he he uh, pulled over three hundred uh, at uh, a very skinny uh, ninety three kilos, and I say skinny because he's pretty tall. So he actually was uh, very strong. But then um, uh, through his journey, through his life journey, through his uh, I guess mental journey. Uh, he is now an absolute monster in the um, in the running field. Uh, just the other month, he during during the lockdown, during COVID lockdown, he uh, ran 100 k's. And so he's one of the coaches that we refer to when we want to um, when we have any any um, clients who want to take on running and the endurance sports and stuff like that. So. Dan's been very knowledgeable in that regard. So he's been a, an inspiration for a lot of the members to take up running, maybe not exclusively, but to actually at least add it into their program. And the other name, T-Chef, which was mentioned, he's one of the one of the OG members, I guess. He is the caped crusader, uh, the the man of mystery. <laughs> so he's been he's been getting into the running himself. Um, and it's it's good to see it's good to see people get into it because um, you know, cardiovascular fitness is highly uh, correlated with life expectancy. And, you know, people have this um, sort of notion that, you know, oh, I'm, a, I'm a strength athlete, I'm a powerlifter, I'm a strong man, I don't need to run, bro, I don't need to do cardio, bro. That's, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I don't want to lose my gains. Quite the contrary, uh, you actually improve your gains because you improve uh, recovery capabilities. And um, not to mention you, you can actually live longer. So that's kind of important. Um, how much, like, what when you started and where you are now in terms of running performance? Take us through that. So, when you started the whole thing, what was tough for you? What was hard to run? And then, well, what's the best you've done since? And in well, how long? I think it's my journey sort of started the way like a few years ago. You know, um, most most people know me as the person that went through like severe mental illness and stuff. And one thing that I've sort of struggled with coming out of it was. Um, the chronic fatigue, right? So, although you might not have a particular mental illness, one of the one of the leading residual factors or symptoms is fatigue, and that's something that I've been battling with over the last couple of years. Um, so, what I've done is um, about December last year, I actually had Dan called me into the, into Granville. It was like, look, come, let's have a chat. I'm like, oh, you know, but I'm not a full member. He's like, look, just come in, we'll have a quick 20, 20 minute, half an hour chat. You know, nothing too formal. Just see where you're at. Um, and I get to me, all right, no worries, cool. So I went in. Um, we had a really good chat, like a more holistic approach to like why I'm sort of feeling fatigue, what's causing it, talk, spoke about diet, spoke about, you know, um, you know, our sleep, uh, sleep hygiene, health, um, how we're feeling overall. Um, and up until that point, I sort of I brought it upon myself to walk, right? So that's how it started. So I was just walking, you know. Um, every day, sort of five, six days a week, I told – he goes to me, what's realistic for you? I'm like, look, I can do five, six days a week of walking easily, you know. Walking doesn't require that much. All it does, you put on your shoes and you pretty much just start, you know. You don't need a place to go. You don't need a treadmill. You don't need any specialized equipment. You just need a pair of shoes, clothes on, and sort of just go down the road. So that's how I started, actually. I was just doing five minutes a day, you know. And and, and that just helped not only with my physical health but more like sort of clear my mind. Um so I did that, you know, I, I started strictly sort of counting my calories. 
Um, and then over time, I started to increase it to 10 minutes, 10 minute walk, you know, 15 minute walk, 20 minute walk. Um, and then over the last few months, I, I by myself, actually, I, you know, let me jump on the treadmill. I'll do a five minute run, 25 minute walk. And then I did, you know, six minute run every week. I'd increase one minute and decrease the walking. And that's when T-Chef came in. It's like, look, we, we can do, we can get you on 10Ks. So up until that point, I didn't have any sort of programming, um, nothing to guide me. It was sort of like I just gradually brought myself into it. But every time I'd run, I'd feel um, severe tightness in the Achilles area, so the, the ankle, so no mobility whatsoever. So as I'd start run, running, that area would start to inflame up um, and I'd find that my calves would be tensing up. Um, and within, you know, 20 meters or within 100 meters, you know, I felt like my lungs were about to collapse, my neck, my upper upper back is sort of like caving in. And it's like you're you're dragging this, you know, 100 kilo frame um, across the road. Um, and, and that was, was tough because within 100 meters, I'm huffing and puffing, trying to grasp some air, but also my body's cramping up and, you know, you'd start to feel pain down, running down your back, and that's when you know you're not healthy, right? <laughs> you're not like you, you're fit, you're, you know, that's that's a problem. You know? <laughs> so yes, yeah, gradually started with the walking, started to introduce some running, but I think this program has helped because it's given me some sort of structure, <clears throat> or it's given me a, a framework to work with. You know, we started with two minute runs, and you know, with breaks in between, and then started to do like five minute runs, and then we're now. Um, and the latest run that I did, I actually had a really bad week <clears throat> last week, actually. But this is something that I've learned along the way. Um, if you if you do have a bad week, it's happened. You know, that's something that you can't change. You know, it's in the past. So I've changed my mentality to when, a few years ago where if I had a bad week, that would turn into a bad month and that would turn into a bad mm-hmm. few months and I'll sort of leave everything behind. So now I'm like, last week, I, it's good because I have, I have that support group. You know, we're always in touch. I'm like, look, I had a bad week. And then teach us like, all right, so what are we going to do about it this week? You know, what are we going to do about it today? I'm like, all right, just get back on the horse, you know, start, just got to get back into it, you know, just pick up where we left up from. Um, and this week I managed to run 30 minutes straight. That was part of the program. And I, I clocked about 4.61 kilometers. And this time I actually felt so much better. I had the um, the capacity to continue running. My lungs didn't feel like they were collapsing. Um, there is, look, there. You, Naturally, you have that tightness and the mobility that you need to continue working on, but there were significant improvements in that as well. So I could keep running. I think I could have probably ran uh, 10, 15 minutes straight, but I just wanted to stick to the program, you know, um, put the ego aside. It's not about how fast you can run or the pace. It's all about, you know, bettering yourself as an individual rather than trying to be better than anybody else. Absolutely, man. Uh, just uh, a race against yourself all the time. And, you know, uh, you said something about um, so you literally. I mean, you know, you, you learned to to walk before you before you ran, and Pretty much, you've gone yeah. from you know a hundred meters to you know four five k's. Uh, how long has that been? What time frame? If you from the program, it's only been five weeks, but from when I started walking, it's been about six seven months. And if I hadn't started six seven months ago, I wouldn't be here doing the four point six one kilometers. Yeah, mm, yeah. it's just about uh, you know just. Stacking up the hours, man, um, regardless of time, just doing it. And you touched on something which I want to get into uh, more and more, which is, which is one of the main reasons why I brought you on, uh, the mental health aspects. And um, I really want to go, go into that, not only what, you do, what you're doing with it, but uh, your views on it, what's happening with society, um, things like that. 
but before we do that, uh, I want to talk about something else that you you actually like a lot, and uh, that is traveling. Oh, yeah. uh, you've you've done a fair bit of traveling. Yeah, you see a smile coming on your face just talking about it. <laughs> um, tell us, you know, what, what draws you to that and where you've been? What are your experiences? Uh, what's been your favorite place? Talk us to that. So, look, uh, I think traveling is, is one of those things that I, I guess we all have our own hobbies and <clears throat> the things that we like to do in our spare time. I think traveling sort of opens a whole new world for you. You know, you get to meet new people. You get to experience new cultures. Um, you need to. You get to experience the way other people live their lives. Um, <clears throat> you know, you get to experience even to the nitty gritty of like how their public transport system works, how they get around, um, and it also gives you time away from you know the day to day hustle that you're you're living in, right? So because the life is always constantly ticking here, where you're working, you know, you're working day and night. You know, you're trying to get hobbies in. You're trying to achieve your goals. You're trying to succeed in every way. And for me, that's it's a way to step away from all that. You know, you leave that and you go, you just explore. And I, I love that exploring the adventure aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, having no responsibility, you take your money with you. And then, you know, any challenges you face along the way, you just learn to deal with it. Because you're in a foreign land. It's not like yeah. you're in Sydney where I can, I can just get in my car and drive back home and that fixes my problems. No, you've got to learn to deal with it. Um, <clears throat> and look, I've, I've traveled quite, quite, quite a bit um and i I it's really hard to say what my favorite place was because i went i went to japan for my honeymoon for a couple of weeks and that was extraordinary um you know you go from tokyo it's a city you know it's like a city of cities to kyoto which is like the imperial capital of you know ancient japan or historical japan to to mount fuji you know to the wilderness and then last year i was i was traveling between europe you know you go from london with so much history people things to do to eastern europe and it's completely different <laughs> you know like you go to bosnia yeah. and you go to croatia and that opens and it's not up too far away you know, it's just a couple yeah. of countries away and that's right so much different so it's pretty like, cool man uh yeah you travel an hour <clears> to get to you get to the other side of sydney yeah you, over there you travel an hour and you're in <laughs> croatia or switzerland yeah yeah, absolutely. And it's completely different, different language, different culture, different everything, different way of life, different history, you know. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying to say, uh, traveling is the, is the antidote to ignorance. And, um, it's very true. Uh, like yourself, I've, I've traveled a fair bit and there's something meditative about it, you know, uh, just being unpurposely lost somewhere and just walking and walking and walking and just turning left, turning right, unpurposely trying to get lost. And just figuring it out, just being in that moment. It's probably one of the one of the few times that I feel like in my life through the things that I do, you know, that I am present in the moment, you know, not thinking about other things. My mind doesn't wander about any worries or anything like that or anything that I've got to do tomorrow or, you know, whatever. You're just there and just taking it all in. And uh, I really feel sorry for a lot of people who um, – Genuinely, I like, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I've never traveled. I, I don't really feel like traveling. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be where I am in Sydney or Melbourne or whatever city or country they live in. Some people are genuinely like that, you know, and I think I think it's just a, a sort of like an ignorance is bliss where they don't know what they're missing out on. So they will never know, but I think they should um, they should reconsider that. Um, I think everybody I think everybody should whenever have the opportunity at least travel once in their life, you know, and get a taste for it. Absolutely, man. Uh, and I don't know when they're going to open things up again with 
now with like all the restrictions of, of flights and travel and stuff like that, I just um, I'm 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 really hanging to to be able to travel again to, to go some places. But um, so tell us a little bit about what you talked about, what you touched on before, which was um, your struggles with with uh, mental health and mental mental illness, and and what you're doing right now uh, through uh, educate. Right, that's yeah. that's the uh, name of the um, organization you you've um, you're involved in. Uh, so yeah, tell us about your history of of what your own experiences were, and then uh, what educate does um, for for that field. Yeah. So my, my experience, um, and I think majority of experiences, a large percentage of people, when they start to develop a mental illness, the onset's usually from a, from a teenage age. So like 50% of mental illnesses start to develop um, from the age of about 14 years old. So that doesn't necessarily mean that people have it at the age of 14, but a lot of the signs, symptoms, experiences start to develop at that time. Um, and that was sort of similar for me. Um, the way we view mental health and the way we compare it to physical health, um, we usually compare it as two, you know, distinct um, a- aspects, right? Um, and usually we 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 neglect the mental health aspect, and we always constantly, um, you know, reflect and sort of focus on the physical as- aspect. And the, it's very common within the fitness industry, um, everywhere else, you know, like as long as you're physically healthy, you're good to go. You know, you've got the six pack abs, or you know, you're in a good light, you're in a good space. Um, you know, your body shaped well, you know, you're running all the time, you know, you're, you're staying active uh, throughout your day to day, then you're, you, you should be healthy. But I think what people or the majority of people um, misunderstand is that our mental health is just as important as our physical health. And that encompasses our, you know, our emotional, our social, our cognitive, our psychological well-being. And and the two, the two um, healths are interlinked, right? They're, they're, they're linked together. So if you're and it can be bi-directional. It's not necessarily one way. If your mental health begins to deteriorate, so does your physical health and vice versa. And I'll, I'll, I'll touch on one of my experiences, and this is something that happened while I was powerlifting that sort of spiraled my mental health into the wrong direction. But, you know, growing up from a young age, I had really low self-esteem. You know, I really didn't like who I was. Um, and obviously, as a male, you're not you're not meant to talk about these sort of things, sort of like tough it up, you know, just, just you know, eat shit pretty much. That's, that's the saying. Um, and, you know, just deal with it. That's just the way it is. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily work because it sort of builds up uh, over time and we don't have any healthy outlets to sort of deal with these situations. And we all know that you don't deal with a problem by ignoring it. The, the longer you ignore a problem, the worse it becomes. And the same thing with physical health, you know. You, you break something or, you know, your physical health is deteriorating, you neglect it over time, it's not going to fix itself unless you visit your doctor, you visit your physiotherapist, you need to talk to the, the right men- the health professionals to deal with it. Very similar to mental health. I had I had very low self-esteem. Um, you know, I had a few experiences. I had a really broken relationship with my, with my, with my father. Um, and all of these things sort of developed over time. And I always get this question, you know, like, oh, why, how did you develop an illness? But did something, did something in particular happen, you know? And I know why people ask that question. People ask that question to determine whether it's justified or not. But little, little do people know. And when you look at the research behind mental illness, and this is decades and decades of research, there are, you know, the factors, the risk factors are multifaceted. You know, you have social risk factors, you have biological, genetic risk factors, you've got psychological, cognitive risk factors that lead to this. So it was a combination of years of sort of like building up um, the stress and um, internally that eventually led to where I was. Um, 
And, you know, and, and these mental, when I, when I was developing severe anxiety, right, because I had anxiety-based depression, so my anxiety is propelling my depression, um, that also turned into, um, you know, physical pain. And I'm probably sure you remember, you know, when I, when I used to come in while I'm training, I'm like, oh, me, man, my stomach is, is tearing itself apart. And it was very, everybody knew Tarek was the guy that had stomach problems. You know, I'd walk in was I've got, man, my stomach's hurting me. And we'd sit there and we'd talk about, you know, what foods we can cut out. And I'd cut out some foods and that might help for, um, you know, a day or two. But then my stomach would inflame again. You know, I'd sit there talking about my neck, my neck pain, my upper back pain. Um, and there was no clear physical sign as to why I was experiencing this, right? I hadn't injured myself. Um, yeah, maybe I wasn't stretching as much, but these these signs didn't have any clear explanation. You know, I, I try to sleep and when I'm, you know, um, in the beginning, I couldn't sleep till two, three in the morning. I'd wake up exhausted all the time, but eventually I'd sleep really early and wake up after an eight hour sleep and I'm still exhausted. Right. And none of these had a, an obvious explanation. And I went to a doctor, you know, tried to get me on the FODMAP uh, diet, which is pretty much canceling almost all the food you've ever eaten in your life. You know, and it's not, it's not realistic, you know, <laughs> I want to eat eggs, you know, I want to drink milk. Um, uh, and, you know, I went through the whole spiritual, I remember we had that conversation. I thought there was these, all these, you know, spiritual problems that, were, that I was having and I'd visit these, these healer. And, and, but at this point I hadn't known what mental illness was or mental health. Right. And it developed, it, it blew out into a specific, into a, like a full blown mental illness. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you remember, there was a time it was, I think it was 2016. We were competing together. No, 2015. I remember that. Uh, we were competing together and it was the day where um, I was going to go for the, I was attempting, you know, a junior record, but I, I missed weight by like 0 0.05 kilos. Um, and then I tore the lower, you know, that muscle in my lower back. Um, mm -hmm. And that, and I was already in a really bad place, you know. Um, and and then what, what I've realized looking in hindsight, like Adonis and the people around me and the gym was, it was like, it was my safe space, you know, like it was a place I'd go um, to help me uh, deal, you know, it, it helped me like sort of cope. It was like a sanctuary where you can go and relax and be who you are and, you know, train and enjoy it. Obviously, there are a lot of physical benefits and also health, mental health benefits to training. But when I tore my lower back and, you know, I went, did sort of physio and was like, yeah, you're good to train. I'd come back and I, I couldn't, I couldn't lift anymore. You know, I'd put this, the, the bar on my back put 60 kilos and it wasn't a matter of I'm weak because I know what I'm capable of. Uh, it was a matter of, I was physically incapable of lifting this weight. It, it's really hard to explain. You know, when I, when I tell people like just lift the weight, it's like, I can't, I can't, it hurts. It really hurts internally. Like it's, it's killing me. My, I can feel my nerves. They're not, my body isn't responding. It's, it's not responding. It's shutting down. And when I tell people that like, what do you mean? It's actually, my body is shutting down. It's not responding to the weight. And that spiraled me into even a worse depression because I, um, even though I'm feeling this way, I've got no outlet anymore. You know, this was my outlet, you know, training. And this is why it can be dangerous sometimes. You know, it can be dangerous to sort of put all your eggs in one basket and rely on one thing to sort of be your your coping mechanism. Or it doesn't necessarily be a, a, be a coping mechanism, but you see that where people indulge their entire life into just, for example, just training for four or five hours a day. But sometimes that can be an escape escape route you know it's sort of like trying to escape their problems eventually um i did i went you know i'm like you know i had i've had enough you know um i went and this is just before the grind actually uh it was in my first year of marriage i, I was struggling for years um i went to the doctor and um 
I've met a friend and we did some exercises about, you know, I want you to tell me exactly what you think about yourself, but I need you to write it. And then I did, I wrote it. And then I realized halfway through that, man, I hated myself. Like I was, if I, you know, how could I think like this about me? Um, and then after I wrote a page and a half of all negative, you know, characteristics and traits that I hate about myself and what I viewed of myself, I started reading it. And then halfway through, I started crying. And that was, that was an opening, right? That was, you know, I, I, don't, I, I'm, I have no shame in it because that, that was the pivot, you know, that helped me. All right, man, you've got, you've got a no, serious man, problem. No, man, no shame at all. Yeah. Exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a big turning point. It should be, in fact, it's pride. It's not, yeah. it's not shame at all to improve yourself and to figure out where you are and finally find yourself on the map, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you know where you are and what you've got to do. Uh, but, yeah, sorry, continue. No, no, no. Um, you see, but it, it didn't get easier there because now I'm unpacking, uh, you know, you're, you're opening in a can of worms. This is when you're really yeah, starting years, to deal with the problem. Of, yeah. You know, years of internalization of negativity mm. and hatred, unpacking it, and then they're like, all right, you have a serious problem here. And I, I found myself in that period being so angry with my dad and all of these bottled up feelings for years because I'm a very – I'm a very quiet person. Like I, I'm quite introverted. You know, I have a very low threshold. When, but with people around me that I'm close to, I'm very open. You know, I talk quite a bit. You know, I'm I'm very social, but I'm I'm also very introvert. I like my space, man. Like that's just who I am. But when growing up, I was very passive. I was like the yes, the yes to my dad. Like that's just the way we are. You know, you, you some you know you you're raised culturally to sort of you know always accept what your parents say. Um, but I found myself after years of you know, whatever was happening, because I was working with my dad my whole life, I started to, these feelings started to really come out and I started to really think about it. And I went, saw a psychologist and the psychologist told me, all right, you've got a serious problem that you need to work with here. You know, you need to speak to your, speak to your dad um, and, you know, talk to him. And when I, when I came and sat with him and at that point I was breaking, like breaking down every once in a while, you know, um, and, you know, my mum will try to talk to me and I'm like, just leave me alone, please. I don't want to talk to anybody. And I'd get angry and I'd get frustrated and then I sat down one day. I had enough, so I sat down and I had this conversation with my dad. And my dad looked at me and he's like, are, are you serious? This happened years ago. I'm like, yeah, but I, I can't let go of it. Like, I need closure. I need to. I need this fixed. I need this resolved. And he said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to apologize um, for it? I'm like, yeah, apologize. And he's like, okay, I, I, I'm sorry for it, what I've done. And that was also, you know, um, that was also a period of catharsis, right? It was a release. It was... It was a, it was a, it was also a turning point, but again, because of because of years of developing this mental illness, your body state doesn't necessarily just say, okay, you've solved this problem, therefore it's fixed. No, there are neurological changes that occur in your body, sorry, in your brain, in your central nervous system. So your body has gone from a standard of you know of homeostasis where you know you respond when you're angry, to appropriately, you know, when you're sad, when you're happy. Your body is now pivoted towards being angry all the time and upset and sad and melancholic. That's it's all, it's all you're doing. You're just always in that mood. So I, I dealt with that and it, it felt like an emotional release. It felt great, but all right, now, now, now I need to deal with all these other sort of problems that I had. Um, and then I had found myself, and this was really, I think this was a really dark time. Um, this is actually just before the grind. It was a couple of months, two, three months before the grind, um, where I found myself sitting in my living room and and, and I was shaking, you know, when you come home from work, you know, you'd want to relax sometimes. You turn on the TV or you pick up a book or whatever it is that you like doing in your spare time. I found myself shaking 
um, uncontrollably, you know, um, and um, I felt dread, you know, worry. I, I felt like I had no control and, you know, it's it's a really disturbing feeling, you know, and I needed that. And at that point, I'm like, man, I, I'm, I'm working on what I need to work on. But that's when I became suicidal, right? Um, it was during that time. I remember sitting in my apartment. I was on like the fourth, living on the fourth floor and I looked out the, the balcony window and I said to myself, man, it'd be so sweet to just, just end it. This, this is it. Like I need this to stop. I, I'm not in control of how I feel. And I think people misunderstand this point. There's a difference between feeling anxious. We all feel anxious, right? It's a very common emotional state. You know, when, when we're feeling under the pump, we're feeling, you know, we're pressured. We need, we need to get things done. We've got all these expectations. It's very normal to feel anxious, but there's a difference when you have an anxiety disorder, right? And that's when your general state is in anxiety, where you're constantly, majority of the time, feeling anxious for no or like no or minimal apparent reason. So you're not sure why you're shaking. So that's when I looked over the window and I said to myself, man, this, like, uh, it would be so good to just end this. Like, there's nothing, nothing is stopping me. Like, nothing can stop this, you know. And when you're in that state of hopelessness, it doesn't matter what anybody would say at that point. You just want the pain to end. You're not in control of this pain. This pain is, is controlling you. But again, and this is, this is advice I always give to everybody that's in that, in that, you know, that state of, you know, suicidal thought or ideation. You can take that, you can take that step you know, and, you know, kill yourself, but that's irreversible. You know, that's something that once it happens, it happens. You can't go back from that, but you can make a choice to not follow through for one day and live that one day longer. And, you know, you can, you can, you can source the help that you need to support you, you know, so live one day longer. You can make that choice to live one day longer, get that support that you need. So that's when I said, no, like, you know, we live to see another day. So, you know, I picked myself up. I went straight back to the psychologist. I'm like, you know, I need to do something about it. And, I, and there's something I call the complacency trap, especially when you have a mental illness. You don't feel ill all the time, right? It's not, it's not usually 100% of the time. So you might have a week straight where you're, you're, you're bedridden, you know, you feel tight, you feel sore. But then you might have a couple of days of relief where you're like, oh, I feel okay. You know, you still be anxious, but you feel okay. And then in that time, you're like, you know what, I, I'm okay. I don't need to see a psychologist. And then it comes back, it hits you, right? Without realizing it, it returns. You know, it's, it hasn't solved itself. But at this point, I've said, no, I, I need to go back. I need to speak to somebody urgently. The fact that I'm getting these thoughts speaks volumes of where, I, where my mental health is. It's, it's at a really low point. So I picked myself up, went back. And, you know, until this point, it's interesting because no one knew, really, except for pretty much maybe my wife and, you know, my, my Faz, my, my closest mm. friend they were the only two people mm. that really knew what i was experiencing but every other person had no idea i'd wake up every morning i'll get dressed you know you would put on that that smile that you know if you could you'd look normal you go to work every day you you do your nine to five no one would even suspect and i think and this is why it, it can be really dangerous and this is why people think absolutely uh, we didn't yeah. see that coming no it's the signs were there but we're not we're not very present we're not very aware of what the signs are so I went back to the psychologist and he said to me, look, you have severe, you know, like you have, you have a severe uh, problem here. And he, and he wrote down, um, you know, you have, you have anxiety, but it's embedded in depression. Um, and, it, and at that point, my, my body was physically shutting down, not only physically, but even sexually, right? People, people miss sort of underestimate the effect that men, your mental health can have on you. And, you know, with, with mental illnesses, you can, it's very comorbid. So you might develop other illnesses and even sexual frustration, you know, your inability to, you know, um, 
you know, maintain an erection, for example, or, you know, um, ejaculate or whatever it may be, or even just your um, sexual um, desire for, you know, somebody that is very attractive, that all dies, it disappears. So, you know, like, you know, people are like, I don't find that person attractive. No, it's just that your, your mechanisms aren't working the way that they should be as a healthy individual. So all of this is intertwined. It's all connected. You can't separate them. So he's like, all right, I need you to go to a doctor because psychologists, obviously, clinical psychologists or psychologists in general can't prescribe medication. Um, so I went, spoke to the doctor, and I'm like, look, this is the paper. It was like a psychometric test. Um, obviously, they do psychometric testing, but they also have clinical judgment, and they collect all this sort of information before they make that, that decision like as to what you're experiencing. Um, so I went, I passed the paper to the doctor, and the doctor's like, all right, we're going to get you on some medication. Um, and he's like, uh, I'll go to him, look, I'm, I'm scared because, you know, like medication, especially within the, the psychiatric field has a, a bad rap. There's a lot of stigma and attitudes, uh, negative attitudes attached to it because we're not sure about the side effects on what we're experiencing. And he goes to me, look, I'll give you Lexapro. I think it's acetylopram, 10 milligrams. It's the lowest dose you can get for this medication. See how your body responds to it. So I took the medication, uh, the, the prescription went to the pharmacy picked up the medication and um, I went home and I sat down and I'm like, oh man, I, I don't know if I want to take this. He gives me take it every day at 4.30 in the afternoon. It should help with your anxiety and it should improve your sleep, your, your the quality of your sleep. So I sat, I sat on it for, I think, for about a week at that time. And I'm, you know, should I take this? Should I not take this? Should I take this? Should I not take this? Um, you know, like what, what will this medication do to me? And I think at this point, I was only two two subjects into my psychology degree. So I was just like sort of relatively new into it all, learning about it. So I was so concerned about the the consequences of this medication that I, you know, I messaged Faz and I'm like, what do you think? You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Mind you, he's not he's not a doctor or, you know, a pharmacist or he, he's not expertise. But, you know, you, you reach out to friends. For, you're turning to a friend. Yeah, you're, you're turning, turning to, to a friend, friend. you know. And he said, he looked, he messaged back and, and this, I, I remember this forever. And he goes to me, how much worse could it be than what you're experiencing right now? And I'm like, man, this, this is so true. Like, it, it, you know, whatever side effects come along with this, it's not going to be worse. I'm, I'm sitting here in my living room thinking about how I want to end my life. You know, like <laughs> what's uh, nothing, nothing can be worse at this point. Cause I was in severe, in a severe state. It wasn't mild, moderate, it was in severe state. So I took the medication and medication usually takes one to two weeks to have an effect, but it, it differs, right, from individual to individual depending on size, gender, et cetera. Sometimes it might, even, might not even have an effect on you. The efficacy is different from one individual to another. So, um, but for me, I'm, I'm so glad within a week or two, I started to see noticeable differences. You know, I, I started to see the changes. You know, I was a lot, lot less irritable. I was so much more productive at work. And this doesn't, this isn't a performance enhancing drug. This isn't, you know, an intelligence drug. This doesn't increase your capacity to learn or it's, you know, it's not limitless, the movie. <laughs> you know, this is just <laughs> your, yeah. your serotonin. It's just making you normal. That's how you're supposed exactly. to be. Yeah. This is how you're yeah. supposed to be because your body isn't producing the receptors in your synapses aren't binding the serotonin. This is what this is doing is it blocks the reuptake of that so that it forcefully creates um, uh, serotonin activity within your brain. So this is what your brain is meant to be doing. And this is where there's a misunderstanding. There are neurological changes happening to you, you know, neurobiological changes. Yeah. And, yeah. and and this is this is in research. They, say, they show that for mild to moderate depression, 
cognitive behavior therapy is as effective as medication. But when you get to severe states of depression, medication is much more effective than cognitive behavior therapy on its own. Obviously, it's recommended you do both because you want to you want that change in your body, but you also want to address the underlying problems that you're experiencing. So the medication will help make you feel normal, but then you need to change these habits that you've developed over years. So how do we work on changing these habits? So then that's when I started to feel a bit more energetic. I'd be at work and, you know, there were times at work where I'd feel so frustrated and tense and I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to, you know, go underneath my desk and just put a pillow and sleep. And now I was, I was sorting folders in the office and I was organizing everything and I was getting things done that I've been delaying for months. And this was, I was getting things done in one, two days, like months worth of work. I was getting them done in two, three days. And it felt phenomenal mm. because I'm like, this is how you're meant to not, you usually feel, you know, you get your ups, you feel good, you get your downs, and you, feel, you know, that's 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 normal. You're gonna have your good days, you have your bad days. You're gonna be happy, you'll be sad, you'll be angry, you'll be frustrated, you know, you'll be ecstatic, you know, you, you know, you'll feel accomplished. Whereas when you're in depression and anxiety, you only feel one, one thing, and that's like apathy, right? It's the emotional numbness. There's, yep. and that's frustrating, yep. you know. There's no response. Absolutely, hundred percent. So, as a side note, do you recommend uh, people who are quote unquote normal, take this medication, get their hand on it. Will it will it make me super productive? <laughs> Look, it's I, I can't give that advice because <laughs> it's medical, right? Um yeah. but if your body is I'm running, after every hack in the book, bro. I'm after everything. <laughs> this isn't wakelet. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> now look the medication it, it probably won't have the same effect as you know somebody that has that um deficiency in serotonin. Um, all those changes. So I, I, I wouldn't recommend just picking it up off the shelf. You know, you're better off probably getting no dose of caffeine to get you more productive <laughs> or wakelet or whatever it is. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. And you, you know, it's unfortunately it can be really easy to get a medication, you know, like in the common day and age where it's sort of, you just mm -hmm. go to the doctor, you say you're depressed and they give you the medication. And look, there's nothing wrong with medication. I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm a big advocate of, um, you know, using medication when necessary. You know, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe within, you know, we've come so far as as a as humanity and society to where we are. You know, like we've developed uh, developed medications, and you know, um, you know, we've got we've got surgeries that we've never had. You know, in history, we've got medications that help us. We've got painkillers. You know, we've got things that can help us. And obviously, anything that is used and abused, like anything, can be abused, right? Um, you just people right. find it and exactly. abused. You know, so but, and that's where the negativity comes along. We don't know what what it does, or we don't have enough information about it. And then we throw things around like you know people are addicted to this, these medications. And people get addicted to many things. You know, if you're in that situation Absolutely. and you're in a severe state, yeah. medication is effective. You know, it's proven time and time again. But obviously, always take it on the advice of a medical professional. You know, don't take well, it the way you say it. Yeah. yeah. I and in conjunction with, like you said, uh, cognitive beh behavioral therapy and stuff like that, it's, it's obviously much more effective. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first of all, uh, that's, amazing. that's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. What I want to know is, uh, and I think a lot of the listeners right now asking themselves is, when you stood on that balcony and looked down and you, and you um, wanted to end it all, as you said, what made you step back? What uh, I, I didn't step on the balcony, but I was I was I was sitting on the couch and I was looking at the balcony. Well, you were thinking about it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I was I was sitting on the couch and I, the couch is looking at the balcony and yeah. I'm looking at that balcony. I'm thinking, man, this is it. Yeah. What What stopped me from doing it is 
like I said, you can take that. Uh, this is my thought process. I can do something right now, right? And I can jump and I can either one of two things will happen. Either I will severely and permanently damage myself or I will die, right? And these are irreversible damages. So I thought to myself, if I may, I can make that, that choice in this split decision, but I can't reverse that. I can't reverse that choice that I've made because you, once you're dead, you're dead. You know, you, you can't change that. But I can make the choice to live to see another day and to work towards fixing this problem. There has to be a solution. I always, I always think to myself, um, I'm, we're not put on this earth to just purely suffer, you know, like to be in pain all the time, to be in this day. So I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to go see my psychologist. I can do that. And that's, that's fine because that, that's reversible. That's something that I can live, but live to see tomorrow, you know, and, and deal with that. But, you know, um, and it's not always the case that, you know, like there is other things like, you know, I, I, I love my wife, for example, you know, like, I, I truly do, you know, we, we grew so close at that time. And there's that, there's that disappointment there as well, you know, um, you know, she's she's trying her hardest to to help me here. You know, the least I can do is help help myself. You know, and I always I I, I truly believe in this. Um, we can all we can all do something. You know, um, it, and it starts with us. You know, we can all take that step. So there were there's the factors that if I did it, it was reversible. I have a choice to go tomorrow speak to a psychologist. Maybe there was medication. There's my family that I love, you know, like my wife mm. being with her all the time. Um, and they I've love got you, a very close friend. And they love you, know. you. That's right, you know. But, you know, in that point, you don't always see that, you know. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, I, I know how to love people, but I don't I don't know how to let people love me. <laughs> you know, yeah. I always say that. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know? totally un- yeah, yeah. And when you're in that position, that's a, that's you're not a, sure, you know, like you're not sure if they do or, or they don't, even though they're telling you this and they're doing everything in their power, you know. Um, but I'm glad I didn't because here I am, um, you know, like today I speak about my story like constantly, you know, I was on a podcast last week. Um, some random guy messaged me. He's like, do you want to jump on a podcast, speak about your story? And I speak about it openly and honestly. And you know what? It, I, I'm proud of that because I, I don't do this. So people can say, oh, look at Tarek, poor thing. He went through all of this, you know, this pain and suffering and, you know, feel sorry for him and, you know, feel sympathy. No, I don't do that for, for that purpose. I do it for for a few reasons and that's educating people about the severity and the seriousness of mental illness, you know, um, and the reality it exists. There's decades and decades and decades of research. Like I'm talking, you know, scientists, psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, working within this field, telling us that it exists. Then there's my personal experiences and it's also to inspire and encourage other people. You know, like I think each and every, each and every individual has something to offer. You know, the, it, there's a life worth living. You know, there's so much potential to be un, to be unlocked that hasn't been unlocked because of the experiences of a mental illness. You know, and once you overcome that, you know, I've always thought very low of myself, and then here I am. You know, like I've I've come out of it. You know, I managed to get into logistics. I got a, into a national, you know, national role at 26. You know, I was traveling between. I, I hated that. I left it eventually, but the fact that I was able to come out of my mental illness allowed me to see that, you know, and explore. I quit my job this year. I worked as a, as a coffee maker, you know, barista, a barista for two months earlier this year while I worked as a mental health support worker. But then my experience, if I didn't have those experiences, I probably would have probably been a bit more sheltered, covered, you know, um, try to be risk averse. But coming out of that, you know, I've been studying psychology for a few years. I've just finished my honours 
you know, and this isn't me even reaching my full potential, you know, I'm still working on myself, you know, I still have those bad days that creep up every once in a while and I'm like, oh, not again, but I'm like, it's okay, you know, you know, you learn to deal with that, you know, and here I am, you know, we're working with educators, we're educating people, you know, about mental illness, we talk about, and we get backlash, you know, like especially within like sort of, you know, from, from I'm not religious, but, you know, you see, you know, comments from people from my religion, you know, like Muslim people writing things like, oh, you know, it doesn't exist. And they start taking it very mm. personally and, and they take offense to it. And I'm like, hold, hold on, hold on. Like why, you know, <laughs> why are you outrightly objecting mental illness when, it, when there's so much evidence to it and it's not contradictory to anything you believe in, but people take it as a threat. So, yeah, we receive a lot of that resistance, not only from our community, but you'll find it amongst so many other communities who also think the same thing. They always think that, psychological illness, mental illnesses are you know um are caused through weaknesses and laziness and you know lethargy and apathy and you know carelessness and recklessness but in reality it isn't you know it's deeper than that and the more we reject it the harder it is becomes for people around us to open up about it and to seek the help that they need the more we reject it and this is proven and i was reading about this and i write about this in my in my thesis about attitudes towards mental illness, you know, it, it has a severe impact on people's um, help-seeking behavior. You know, it has an impact on whether they follow through with their therapy, you know, with their medication, you know. Um, and this is from the general population. So if you have a negative attitude towards somebody, you know, in your family who are showing these signs, they're less likely to open up to you and they're less likely to seek help that they need. So why be that, that you know, that... Um, the 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 block you know the obstacle in that person's pathway to seeking help we can't say let's just ignore other people's opinions because we're not built like that you know we we value the opinion of our close friend, family and friends we value the opinion mm -hmm. of people that are close to us so we can't just say oh just ignore what people think about it no it's we need to start changing opinions we need to start creating safe places at home where our where our own people you know our own family and friends can feel comfortable enough to open up about it you know and then you know us equipping ourselves with, with this information so we can say look i understand what you know i probably won't understand what you're going through but i've read about it you know there are solutions you know there are you know there's there are treatments available for what you're going through let me help you you know or let me you know i'll accompany you to your gp or i'll take you to your psychologist appointment and i'll sit outside and i'll wait for you you know but it's all these small things that help you know that make make that difference yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, uh, there's a couple of things that that uh, you touched on, and I want to go into each of them a little bit more in detail. Um, one was uh, something that you just said right now, which was, um, um, you know, uh, it's tying with with religion, and that's actually something that I wanted to to ask you about. So, uh, like. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you're Muslim and within the Muslim community, and I don't know, and this is something I want to ask you, I don't know and I don't think that it's something that's exclusive to you know, the Muslim community. Uh, I think it's, it's something that maybe is tied in with just religious people, right? People who are brought up to be very religious and not question the teachings of a religion and stuff like that. Uh, like you, I'm not, I'm not very religious at all. Uh, I, was, I was born in a Muslim country, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't practice it uh, very much. Um, I uh, do notice that a lot of people uh, do sort of chalk up certain things like that to, oh, well, your faith is not strong enough. Or, you know, um, and, and that, that's why you are, we are feeling these feelings like, you know, depression or sadness. You know, if you believed in God more, um, 
the, the answers are there for you. You know what I mean? Things like that. Do you think, do you think uh, it's an enabler? Do you think it's something, uh, you know, this kind of a culture uh, of, of any, you know, overt religiousness, not, not in any particular religion, could be anything. Do you think uh, that is something that co- can cause a problem in that regards? It can cause a problem because, especially if you're religious, right? Um, and this is common. I'll, I'll mention another point um, just to show how, you know, um, how universal this is. Our negative attitudes and the way we view it and we try to frame it within a religious lens can have a negative effect. Because if you're telling somebody that has severe depression, this isn't sadness. Right? This we're not talking about a general sadness or you know or you know a brief experience in not feeling that well for a couple of days. We're talking about a full blown mental illness. So when you're telling somebody with a mental illness that the reason why you're experiencing this is because you don't know God enough, or you know if you if you believed more. You know, that's like telling somebody with cancer, you know, it's because, you know, it's because you're not believing enough in God. And that's why God gave you cancer or, you know, you're not, your mm. faith isn't strong enough. Mm. And this is, this is the sort of comparison I like to make because this is the way we should be viewing it, right? Um, the same way we view a physical illness. But yes, people, especially from religious background, value leaders' opinions, right? They value what they say. And sometimes you'll find that they value their opinion more than they value their own parents' opinion. So it's extremely important that, especially if you're in a leadership position, a religious leadership position, you, you know, you educate yourself within this field. Because I think most of the time it's a misinterpretation. It's not necessarily the religious text that tells you that, you know, you know, being sad is, or because they don't really speak about mental illness just the same way they don't talk about cancer or they don't talk about, you know, Alzheimer's disease or schizophrenia or whatever it is. Um, it's the interpretation that can be quite, um, you know, can have, can have that negative consequences. And while I was doing my mental health first aid instructor training, I had a few ladies in my group. Um, they're from Pacific Island backgrounds, Samoan and Tongan, and they have the very, very, very similar experiences, uh, uh, you know, as I did, you know, where, you know, a, a kid had, you know, died by suicide and at the funeral, you know, they're giving a talk about how this, this kid's going to hellfire and, you know, how dare he, uh, you know, take his own life and et cetera, et cetera. Imagine the amount of people that, you know, are sitting around there, you know, like all the youth or adults that are growing up and listening to this sort of talk happening. I'm not, you know, look, there's a, there's a time and place and there are, you know, rulings around suicide, but this is, this is beyond the point, like besides the point, you know, if, if you're from a religious background, you know that obviously it's up to God to decide your out, you know, your, your outcome and your output. That's not us for this side, but there are kids that are standing there around that, that are experiencing very similar, you know, signs that this, that, that, that same person that, you know, um, would be experiencing. So when they hear that, all it does is it adds more stress, you know, more suffering, more pain to whatever they're already experiencing. And let me tell you something, when you get to the point where you're thinking about, you know, taking your life, it doesn't matter what anybody says at that point. You know, you can talk to me about God, you can talk to me about religion, but I'm not listening to you. You know, I'm just thinking, how do I end this pain? How do I stop this pain? And you need to be very considerate of that. So, and, and this is some work that we've been doing in, in our space. You know, we've had a couple of, um, uh, we've had a couple of talks, you know, we've done, um, you know, workshops in religious settings and there's a lot more responsiveness and what you usually find, and this is from people from strictly religious backgrounds, you know, they're reaching out to us and saying, 
I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Like, I don't know what to do. They're telling me I have severe anxiety. It won't stop. Is there a solution to this? You know, my, my brother, and we had people reach out. My brother's like, you know, um, uh, he's suffering from severe OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, not the OCD that we talk about. Well, oh, you know, you're so OCD about, you know, the, the gym being clean, for example. No, we're talking about a severe, full-blown mental illness. Um, and he's extremely religious, right? And this is stopping him from leaving the house, from him doing his bare minimum, you know, from him functioning. Um, and one guy and, and one of the co-founders, he had spoken about this, reached out to him. And this guy spent five years studying religion overseas, you know. He mm. threw himself into trying to better himself. And he's like, I, I'm struggling. I, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I have, um, you know, I've experienced abuse at the hands of my father. And I think, I think it's his parents. He suffered, I think it was physical and potentially even sexual abuse on the hands of his father. And he doesn't know how to cope with it. Even though he went overseas, he spent five years dedicating his life to learning the religion to become a religious leader. And he's, and he's suffering in the background, right behind the scenes. But he doesn't, he doesn't know how to do with it. So when you just say that it's because you're not close enough to God or you're not religious enough, what you're doing is you're oversimplifying what mental illness is. And even when you read psychology, psychology textbooks, man, like, you know, when I'm studying about mental illness, I just think to myself, man, how do you know, like, I, I want to become a researcher, but I'm like, man, I'm going to need so much patience when trying to learn more about mental illness because it's so, it's so convoluted, right? It's complex, you know, and that, and that's what it is. It's so complex that you can't just you know, try to fit it within a very oversimplified view of the world because we understand there are so many risk factors that can cause that. And it's a case-by-case basis. What might affect me might not necessarily affect you. You might have more resilience. You know, we have, we have differences in our personalities and the way we interpret and we um, process information. So, again, we can't just oversimplify it and say it's because you're not religious enough. I'm not telling people not to be religious, Right. I'm not telling you to not be close to your religion because spirituality, and when you speak to a psychologist, they'll tell you that can be very effective in, you know, in building resilience and coping. But again, Absolutely. you need to address the mental illness. Absolutely. Uh, have you have you read um, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? That was one of the first. That was Amazing book. First I've read, man. Amazing, incredible. So uh, a couple of things, and anybody who's listening to this who hasn't read it, I highly recommend you read it. When I first got it, and I, it starts very slow, and, and you're almost like, oh, oh, where do I get this book? Uh, but you just stick it out. It is, it is an amazing book. Um, in a nutshell, it's a, um, a, um, a recount of uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a, a Jewish uh, psychologist. Am I right? Psychologist? Psychiatrist. And I think psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, during World War Two, when in his experiences of survival in Nazi concentration camps, and basically he recounts his observations of people around him, and uh, because you know he was a psychiatrist and uh, was, you know very observant with with people's behaviors and stuff like that. So one thing that you m- mentioned was was apathy, and um, you know he would mention in the book that after a while, when you're in the concentration camp, there could be a corpse right next to you as you're eating. And it means nothing. You just continue eating. Uh, you just you just keep going, and so it kind of becomes the same sort of thing when you're constantly in this state of maybe pain, um, uh, low low energy. You know, not really feeling um, motivated to do anything in life and stuff. And it just kind of becomes like normality, and nothing really 
nothing really changes for you. You don't really care. And up to the point where, you know, you probably does, does affect, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, probably does affect your decision on, on suicide because you don't care about the outcome of what you're supposed to do. Uh, what he did mention was um, uh, uh, he found that a lot of, a lot of the people who thought about ending their life but they didn't in the concentration camps were the ones who didn't particularly think about themselves. They thought about what it is that um, – or who it is that they are – or even what. What or who it is that they are living for. So for some people, you know, they had um, th- they had books to write, you know, that were like authors or whatever. And uh, so they were thinking about their bodies of work that they must finish so that other people can be can see that body of work when uh, you know in the world and be affected by it positively. Other people who rely on them, their children, their wives, they want to see them again. You know, so it, uh, he was basically talking about when you uh, one of the one of the um, main themes of the book is that when you start when you start to step away from uh, yourself and anything to do with you really yourself and you be, you transcend yourself. And live for another purpose or another person. That's when you start to uh, really um, have meaning in life and really have something to live for, and you enjoy life more. And 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 you can survive things more, right? You can get through tough times better. You can fi- figure things out a little bit better. So I, I think I, like that book was was really eye opening and. Uh, I really highly recommend the book to to anybody uh, who wants to who's just into reading who just wants to read about um, just getting after it, just having a better life. Uh, it, it answers a lot of questions. Do you think that that's part of the reason? I mean, look, I, it seems to me that uh, in in our time now, compared to oh, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, it seems to be much more cases of depression of anxiety, not even depression, just anxiety. So correct me if I'm wrong, anxiety is more like a lower level, correct? It's not as deep, as harsh, as as severe, as dangerous. So like, because you said, everybody ex- experiences anxiety to some level, right? But I'm talking about like more chronic anxiety, more constant anxiety. It seems to me that now we are getting more of that, even the lower level stuff, not necessarily depression, like severe depression and then suicide, because that's there as well, but even lower level, just anxiety compared to like 15, 20 years ago. Do you, do you think there's a particular reason for it? Or do you think it's just being better diagnosed? Do you think it's social media? Do you think people are softer? Do you think people have lost their meaning? Do you think um, values in society have broken down? Is it all of the above or is it something else? I think it's – I'm not exactly sure on, on like the exact statistics as to whether anxiety has increased or decreased and depression. But, it, you know, I think we both can agree that over the last 15 years, the way the world looks has completely changed. You know, um, we've moved from, you know, a face-to-face, a more face-to-face environment, you know, where you'd spend time with people to a more digital platform. So everything's a lot more accessible now. We, you know, we're inundated and we're flooded with all this information about um, what's happening around the world. Um so one of the one of the reasons why I think anxiety is I, I think a bit more prevalent than it is now I think it's a if if it is it, it'd be a combination of a few factors one is we, we've as a society you know when you look twenty years back people are more more likely to open up now than they were twenty years ago so you know when you speak to I think I speak to a lot of people in the old generation 
and I'm like, oh, you, you're showing some, you know, <laughs> you are showing some signs there of, you know, a, you know, a, a potentially, you know, an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, but it's very, we're very dismissive of, of it. But that's, you know, when you look at people in, in a much older age bracket, so a lot of them have carried this pain with them to a very old age. So they actually haven't really spoken about it. And this is the same thing with autism, right? Um, you know, even though cases have increased, it's not necessarily, you know, you have the whole vaccine cause oh, crap anyways. You know, where I stand on that. Um, don't get started. Don't get started. Yeah, started. But it's because, you know, we're becoming a lot better at diagnosing, you know, mental illnesses. There are better psychometric testing capabilities. You know, there are better assessments that are coming along. Um, there's so much more information coming to light about what it is and what it isn't. So when you're talking about just general anxiety, maybe, yeah, we maybe we are, we do have just a bit more general anxiety. But given the circumstances, you know, um, especially now during a pandemic, uh, that's very it's completely understandable as to why you'd have a lot more anxiety you know um you understand why because you know it, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world at the moment you know um and i'm sure you feel the same you know running your gyms you know you're not you're not sure if they're going to close down or they're not and that that can spark anxiety you know some people are living day to day thinking am i still going to have a job tomorrow how am i going to feed my family how am i going to make my mortgage repayments you know um is the housing market going to crash, for example? Or, you know, when, when am I able to travel again? You know, because for some people, everything might not matter, but traveling might be their, you know, their, their number one go-to. So that might make them feel anxious. So given this time, yeah, there's a combination. You've got your psychometric assessments improving, our information's improving, um, you know, our knowledge around it. People are opening up. I think we have more access to psychologists now than we have before. You can get yourself a mental health plan, so subsidize access to you know mental health professionals there's a lot more information online to speak about it so maybe that would have contributed to it um back to what you were saying i just want to touch on it quickly um the victor frankl's book what was the it's on the front page what was it again um what was the quote and search for meaning yeah oh, the quote a, um anybody it, who has a strong enough why uh can bear almost any how yeah, and, and that's, that's very powerful. Yeah, that's the one. And I think mm -hmm. that's Nietzsche, right? I think it was Nietzsche's quote. Yeah. Um, and he speaks about that, you know. Um, so, and it's interesting to, to when you said about, you know, like suicide, um, it, it's true, you know. Um, and in mental health first aid, what we're taught is if you're not sure about, um, if you're not sure about why somebody is, you know, suicidal or, um, you know, what they value, don't make them feel guilty about it. You just need to make sure that you know why, like what's important to them. So if they tell you that, you know, you know, I don't want to do this because because of ABC or, you know, because of my my my, my mum or my dad or my, my children and my siblings, then you can use that and say, all right, let's, you know, how do we work towards, you know, making sure that they're involved, you know, in their life. Um, but uh, other than that, if if they're not mentioning anything in particular, it, it can be very dangerous the other way, right? Where you're saying, you know, why are you doing this? You've got a mum, you've got a dad, you've got a child, you've got this, you've got that, and guilting him into it. Because when you're in that state, um, you, you genuinely, like this is sincerely, you actually think that nobody cares about you and you think that um, you actually think that they're better off without you in their life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I had a friend reach out to me. Um, this is a while back and he and he's like, Man, I need I need to catch up with you right right now. I need to not, like right now. And I was I was down here at home. I was just about to go out with a few friends and I'm like, Is everything okay? He's like, Please man, I need you just just come like I need to speak to you. And I went and I spoke to him and he's like to me, Man, like you don't understand, I've thought about it so many times. You know, I've um I, I've um 
he was there was a case where there were a few people that had like close like not close to him but he heard about you know kids taking their life and he's like man i've i just looked at it and i thought to myself man how good would this be just to end it like i'm in so much pain and then he mentioned that you know like one of the reasons why i don't want to do it is because you know i have my 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 child and you know i love them so much that i said to him all right then you know how, how do we want you know how do we get you to make sure that you're there for your child you know um you know and and then they'll, they'll genuinely say things like my you know, my, my son will be better off or my daughter will be better off without me in their life. You know, I'd rather not have them in my life. Um, you know, and, but in reality, we know that it's the opposite. Yeah. Like that's the truth. Absolutely. So how do, how do we, but what do you, that? what do you say to somebody like that? What did you say to him? I mean, that's because they genuinely believe that, like you said, you know, so what do you say to somebody like that? I said, I said the truth to him. I'm like, Tim, you and I both know that your son would much prefer to have you in their life or your daughter will much prefer to have you. It's proven over and over again. It's really important for your child to have you in your life because at this point he said, this is the reason why I don't want to do it because I love my, my child, right? But at the same time, it's, you know, the child's probably better off living without me. So I, I, I said that. I'm like, we both know it's actually very important, you know, to have your, you know, to, for you to be there for your son or for your daughter. It's important that their father is there for them to grow, you know, to grow up with them and to give them everything they need to spend moments with them. You know, those really important moments that many of us didn't have with our parents because people under underplay the the effectiveness or people underestimate the power of relationships between parents and children. And it's it's incredible what our relationships with our parents can mean to us. You know, a broken relationship can lead down a rabbit hole, you know, a really dark rabbit hole, but it can also be very um you know, it can be very powerful. So when he told when he told me that, you know, I'm living because I, I want to be with my son or with my daughter, I said to him, okay, then let's let's work for let's work with that. Let's run with it because they're telling me, you know, he's telling me that this is the reason why I'm doing this. And then I started outlining the information as to, all right, this is why you should do it. You know, you're saying your son's important to you. You're saying your daughter's important to you. Then be there for your for your child. You know, um. Then you know you say things like how how much would have you loved it if you had a good relationship with your father and your and your mother you know how much would you value that and then he's like yeah I'm like and you know and then you start talking because people that want to you know you know they're thinking about it they're not bad people you know and, and I said that to him I go man you're, you're fantastic you're great you know like people around you love you you know you've got you've got good friends you know you've got a good partner you've got a good son you know we, we, I love being around you you know I have fun being around you you know. I enjoy going out to have feed with you. You know, I enjoy going for a coffee with you. I enjoy doing all these things with you. Man, you've come so far in your life. And, and I'm like, you're, you're so young as well. You've got so much to look forward to in your future. But I'm a, and I go to him, at this point, it's your severe anxiety that's talking. It's not you, right? But mm. once, you, well, once you overcome this, you start to see that hope. And, you know, after, after we had a good hour in a conversation, we went and ate. And you can you can tell it's, it's so obvious as day that his demeanor changed from being panicking, right? Because you know when you have a panic attack, right? That's when you're in a crisis mode. You know when you have a panic attack, you actually feel like you're dying, right? When you look at the symptoms of a panic attack and you compare it to the symptoms of a heart attack, they're almost the same. Like literally, you think you're having, but they only last about eight to ten minutes before they pass. But while you're in it, it's it's it's, it's disgusting. But it was so obvious to me that at that point, you know. All he needed to, all he needed was that he needed somebody to listen to him, to talk to him, and he didn't know who to reach out to. But because I speak about this now on a regular basis, and I, you know, post online, and people know me, I'm very unapologetic about the space. Like, you know, if you don't like it, you know, and you don't want to jump on board, 
don't. It's, it's not my problem. Mm. You know? I'm here to help people that want help. And because I sat there and I listened to him for an hour and it was genuine, it wasn't that I just sat there. Don't go there and just sit around and look around and uh, you know, touch your phone and look at your watch. You know? No, actively listen, sit there and talk to them. Yeah. You, you don't have to say anything sometimes. Sometimes all you need to do is sit there and listen to them because we usually listen to respond, not listen to, to actually listen, right? To hear what they have to say. Listen to respond. Don't listen to respond. Listen to hear. Sit there, talk to them. You know, um, a technique uh, of active listening is to, you know, every once in a while, repeat, repeat and get confirmation from them about, you know, what their, what their, you know, concerns are. And that, what that shows is you're, you're acknowledging, all right, you're understanding, you're following with them and you're getting clarity. And, you know, if, if you're not understanding, then they can correct you, you know, but don't sit there as soon as they open their mouth with one thing. And start to formulate, you know, you see, you start to see the, the wheels turning in your head about how you're going to respond to this person. After yeah. an hour, we got some food, you know, he felt so much better. And um, I go to him, all right, so what are you going to do now? I go, what's, what's the next step, you know? And you, you need to be confident, right? So you need to be confident when you're talking to them because confidence can be contagious. Or it can also give them the reassurance that, okay, this person knows what they're talking about. And this person needs to support me. I'm like, all right, so what's, what's the next step? Where are we going to go from here? You know, I, I, we, I want you to do something about what you're experiencing for your sake and for your child's sake and for people around you, you know. You said this, your child means a lot to you. How are we going to make sure that you, you're there for your son and for your daughter and, you know, and you're going to give them the best life that they can? And he's like, all right, well, you know, like what do you recommend? I'm like, go to your doctor, get yourself a mental health plan. Refer yourself to a GP, uh, to, a, to a psychologist. If you don't like the psychologist, you know, just like people jump from doctor to doctor until they get what they want, find yourself another psychologist. You know, with mental health and physical health, there's that stigma attached and there's attitudes where, you know, if one psychologist doesn't work, therefore they all don't work. Whereas when you go to a GP, he doesn't work, all right, I'll go to the next one, he'll give me, he'll give me medication. Mm. We'll give 30 GPs a chance. We'll give 30, you know, um, specialists in the field a chance we'll give 30 surgeons a chance but with psychology we go like we give one person a chance ah, it didn't work so we stop yeah so he did he booked yeah. he booked a session you know and i check in every once in a while we catch up and then follow up you know every couple of weeks or every week how you been how you feeling today and you know it, g- genuinely check up on them don't just send the message and say oh how you been and then just so that you can show that you know you're shot you're, you're checking in on them and then disappear for two weeks you know like I'm a big believer in when you do something, do it genuinely, you know, don't just do it half-assedly or because you feel like you need to do it, you know, to fit some sort of cultural tradition or, you know, um, you know, some code, unspoken masculine code or whatever it is. No, do it because mm-hmm. you genuinely want to hurt, want, want to support somebody. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, you know, you, you said something about uh, just anxiety, especially during COVID with a lot of people um, just uncertainty and uncertainty can cause you know a shitload of uh anxiety uh something i've noticed myself so you you said something you like you used me as an example you know uncertainty about for example the gyms the businesses and maybe they'll collapse and maybe they will uh, for me personally i i embarked on a journey of um, delving into uh, stoic philosophy uh some time ago and for anybody listening who uh, – now, this is not an antidote to depression or, you know, suicidal thoughts, but it's a way to um, arm yourself. What I think the missing link is 
for a lot of people and how you can at least soften the blow, so to speak, is by having a, a more solid structure. By the way, do, uh, you can keep going. You don't have to go. Yeah. Because I know you, you, we only have, yeah. Five, ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, is it all starts with inside your head, you know. So uh, it is easier said than done uh, because by the time you're trying to catch it, it's, it's kind of too late because you've lived your life that way. You've lived your life uh, thinking bad about yourself, putting yourself down, letting other people put you down, letting other people's opinions of you matter, right, when they shouldn't because it just doesn't. Simple as that. Uh, the things that you tell yourself on a daily basis are very important. And, you know, things you tell yourself about yourself, about who you are, what you're capable of, and, and things like that. And thankfully, I came to this realization uh, when I was in my mid-teens, um, even almost like early teens, uh, I, when I started to get into like uh, self-help kind of stuff, mindset kind of stuff. And that sort of carried on and, and led me down a rabbit hole, which eventually, you know, uh, in more recent times, uh, led me towards Stoic philosophy. For those of you who don't know it, I highly recommend you get into Stoic philosophy. And I, the word philosophy throws a lot of people off because they're like, man, fuck that. I'm not getting into philosophy. You know, that's what, that's what people think. But it's, it's more a, a, a manual for your brain, for your thoughts, for your life. It's got an answer to almost everything. And one of the backbones of Stoic philosophy is only worry about what you can control and do not worry about the rest. I there is a, a, At the moment, there's talks of a second wave coming and potentially a lockdown of gyms again. I can't control that. It's not great. It would suck, but I can't control that. What I can control is what I'm going to do if that happens. What kind of things can I do? to soften the impact. And so if I can't control it, there's no, there's no reason for me to worry about it and cause myself uh, that anxiety. So in fact, believe it or not, I'm actually pretty relaxed about it. I'm actually pretty comfortable about it. If they announce tomorrow that we have to have another lockdown, and even if in the outside chance that lockdown causes me to close one or all of my gyms, so be it, man. I'll pack it up. I'll restart again because I know who I am and I know I can start again from scratch and still make it once again. But that came through years of thinking like that, you know. And and that's not to say that uh, negative thoughts don't uh, don't uh, uh, pop in every now and again. Of course it does. But you become more aware of it. You, you become more aware of how you're thinking and correct yourself when you're thinking that way. And, and uh, you have a more positive... Uh, conversation with yourself than a negative one and when negative ones come out you start to become much more aware of them right so that's one thing the other thing is that i recommend myself and i i'm sure you would probably agree with this is practicing meditation and mindfulness on a regular basis once again the word meditation for a lot of people are like man fuck that i'm not meditating i'm not sitting in the lotus position uh like some sissy and just like uh chanting and shit that's what people think but that's not what it is um, mindfulness and and doing it on a regular basis has been shown conclusively through uh, brain scans and studies to uh, help you regulate what's going on there's so much 
um, lack of attention, you know, short attention span, the lack of the ability to be able to focus on things and achieve things because there's, there's so much distractions in the world, you know, to be able to control your own mind, which belongs to you, your own time, your own thoughts, which belong to you. Because at the end of the day, your thoughts and your mind, those is the one thing that people can't take away from you. You know, you, they can take away all your worldly possessions, but they can't, nobody can take your thoughts because you're in control of them. And to be able to, and, and, you know, to understand that that's something that you have to have practice over in different ways, uh, getting into sports, competing, because that puts you in a bad position, a stressful situation where you have to figure it out, traveling, uh, right? All of these stuff, you have to practice it on a daily basis. And I think that's part of the reason maybe why there is, one of the, one of the reasons why there is maybe what seems to be, without having access to t- statistics right now, right here, uh, an increased uh, amount of um, mental uh, health issues and stuff like that. Because there's more distractions, there's more things coming in, more information, and there's less control of our own thoughts that we are, we are doing less and less in regards to that, you know. Going for a walk is meditation, you know, just going for a walk without any distractions, just taking a few deep breaths, those just focusing on, on one thing at a time. And I think uh, a lot of people, a lot of people miss, uh, are missing out on, on a lot of good things in regards to that. Um, look, I would love to continue this for another hour, but I know you got, uh, you got things to do. Can you tell us a little bit about Educate and where people can find you, what it is Educate does, and, uh, and if people want to reach out to you to have a chat, uh, because no doubt a lot of people are uh, listening to this and they could be suffering from anything from low-level anxiety to suicidal thoughts. And uh, people like you uh, are a godsend. So uh, what does Educate do? Uh, what do you do? And, and how can people reach out to you or Educate? All right. So um, as, as an organization, so we're a not-for-profit and our main focus is on mental health education. So at the moment, we're running mental health first aid Um the courses, uh, so it's between me, myself, and um, my, my close friend and co-founder, Ziad. So we run the courses. Um, and what they do is we've got a 12-hour standard mental health first aid, so that, that pretty much equips you with education, knowledge, and tools on how to respond um, across a certain number of mental illnesses and crises. Um, and we also got the youth mental health first aid. That's a bit longer. It's 14 hours. So it's for adults that want to know how to deal with youth, like with youth between the age of like 12 and 18 or 12 and 20. And then we've got the teen mental health first aid, which is uh, for you know, like teens, so under like 16 years old. But we also, um, you know, we do like public events. So we, we try to, um, you know, speak to, you know, specific communities, both like general, but also culturally and linguistic diverse communities. We speak about our experiences. We speak about mental health. We try to educate. We've got a lot going on in the background. So we're developing our own courses as well in-house. Um, we're potentially looking at even creating a men's, a men's support group, you know, where, you know, you can sign up and come along once, you know, every two to three weeks. And we just talk, you know, no therapy, uh, but we can sort of air out our, um, our grievances or what we're going through and give each other advice as to all right, what, what, you, what you're entitled to or who you can access or maybe, you know, which psychologist you can see. Um, and we, we create a lot of content online, you know, so we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and we are on Instagram. And we, we constantly create new content around mental illness, information around mental illness. 
but I want to say that, look, we're not therapists and we've never said that we're therapists, you know. Um, we, we need to make that distinction because even though I'm in the process of becoming, you know, a psychologist, um, hopefully should register as a provisional by end of this year, got to do my couple of years of experience before I'm fully registered. Um, and Ziad's currently also studying think looking into going to a masters of counseling um yeah because when we do some videos and we just get bombarded with messages you know like i need help we need help we need help um look if it's you know it, it's good but we also we always direct people you know look we can't give you tailed advice because obviously there's there are a lot of legalities around that and there's also you know we want to make sure that we're we're directing you to professionals within the space because each case is different so look if you're feel if you know if you're thinking about suicide and all that kind of stuff call lifeline you know the, the numbers online it's 24 7 access and it's free you know you have trained crisis counselors that will help you you know if you're in that situation um there's also other uh, links online like um you know beyond blue has so much information about you know mental illnesses you've got the black dog institute you've got say in australia if you want some more information if you're struggling and you don't know where to start start with your gp i always you know this is i give this information um to everybody start with your local gp speak about what you're going through candidly so don't hide you know don't you know make you oh but i, I kind of have this but not, no, you've got to speak openly about it get yourself a mental health plan and get directed to a psychologist that's the best way to go about it but you know if you have any questions feel free to reach out to us you know if you want some information about where you can access this you know shoot us an email and say look i've um, you know, where can I get some more information about anxiety or where can I get more information about post-traumatic post -traumatic stress disorder or do you recommend any books about, you know, this certain topic, you know. But, yeah, get online, you know, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook and Instagram, you know, give us a follow and, you know, like and share. We, we do create some good content. We get a good lot of good feedback um, and hopefully, you know, it, it inspires people to, to to get the help that they need. Beautiful, man. I'll, I'll put up the uh, link to the Instagram profile in the description. But hey, man, I I want to say, uh, you know, n not only myself, but all the friends around you, uh, uh, definitely you get lo lots of love from us, brother. And uh, and we're definitely glad that you didn't, uh, you did decide on the right thing when you looked at the balcony and look at what you're doing now. You know, uh, you've created something that is going to help m multiple, many hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the future who are going to be in the same position as you sitting on a couch looking at the balcony and they're going to they're going to reach out to you and uh, you're going to literally save a life and that's uh, priceless so thanks for joining me uh, that was that was really inf insightful and and um, hopefully we can get you back for some more stories down the track awesome. thanks for having me at me so there you have it guys thank you once again for joining in on the Amir Fazeli podcast please make sure you follow and also rate the podcast because it helps us get it out there in front of more and more people and helps us grow it. Uh, obviously, as always, if you have any comments or suggestions or questions, send them through to amir at adonisathletics.com.au.